want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're continuing our series on doctrines um, that we hold dearly. And once again, this is not an exhaustive um, list of all the doctrines we hold dearly. There's a number of doctrines we're not going to look at. Um, but these are some things I wanted to make sure that we discussed before we hit our next series, in which we want to go through Luke and Acts, which will likely take us between two or three years, um, thinking minimum, um, to get through that. And so we wanted to, to go ahead and hit a few things that I think characterize us as a church, or at least who we hope to be. Um, we've already looked at um, one of the doctrines we hold dearly is preaching the Word of God. Um, we've also looked at the sovereignty and the supremacy of Christ. We see Jesus as supreme in all things. We want to hold him up highly. A couple weeks ago, we looked at um, mercy ministry to the poor and how that's God's heart is to the poor. And we're going to pick up on that um, tonight by looking a little bit further into that in Luke chapter 10. So if you'll begin reading with me, um, begin in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, And gave to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that through your spirit, your word would become alive to us. It would penetrate even into the darkest and the hardest of hearts. Give us more than just understanding. Give us a truth that changes our lives. Lord, I ask that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let your words remain and may they change us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Paul Johnson's a, a historian who wrote a book called Intellectuals, in which he gives all these biographies of different intellectuals who helped shape the world um, with their theories. And in this book, he made an interesting observation. 
he noticed that all of these intellectuals actually had a terrible time living out the principles that they had outlined. Um, uh, For instance, they might love the idea that man should love one another. But a lot of them had a really hard time actually loving one another, and many of them confessed that they actually had an intense hatred towards certain people. Uh, Karl Marx, he was one of the people that Johnson wrote about, and Marx was a self-proclaimed defender of the working class. Um, Yet, if you were to study Marx's life, he never had a single friendship with somebody from the working class. Um, He never stepped foot into a mill or a factory or a mine or um, any kind of industrious place his entire life. For the last 10 years of his life, he never had less than two servants at any time. And so Karl Marx, he actually failed his own intellectual standards for what he thought life should be like. And we do the same. I can remember sitting at Beeson Divinity School about probably about 12 years ago, and one of my professors asked if we had hearts for the poor, if we loved the poor. Now, who in the world is going to raise their hand and say, I don't love the poor? No. And so, you know, we all raise our hands. Of course, we love the poor because he wanted us to, to raise our hands. And, and he said, that's great. You know, that's great. Somebody, somebody share, you know, maybe something that they've done for the poor this past week. There was silence. It's like, did, did anybody here do anything for the poor this past week? Nobody raised their hand. He goes, well, okay, that's, perhaps that's unfair. This past month, for those of you who love the poor, somebody get up and share what they've done for the poor this past month. Nobody. This is divinity school students. Mercifully, he stopped there. Mercifully, he stopped. But, but he then asks, he goes, well, tell me exactly how is it that you love the poor? We love the idea of loving the poor, but we didn't actually love the poor. I, I took a survey in one of the, the past churches I used to work in, and in this survey I had a category about a, you know, ministry to the poor is something I'm very interested in. I had over 90% of the people mark that. Of about 300 people who took the survey, over 90% marked ministry to the poor is something that they would be very interested in. And so after a month of promoting this one event for the poor, we had exactly two people sign up. Two. And what I should have said is, I have a heart for having a heart. You know, for ministry of the poor, I really like the idea, but really when it comes to it, don't count on me. You know, in all Christians, we love the idea of mercy ministry. We love the idea of helping the poor and oppressed, but for most people, that stays an idea. And I don't want to be too harsh, because I do think if I were to ask most of you guys, you know, what have you done for the poor? If you've given to this church, if you've given tithing offerings to this church, you have given to the poor, because a lot of that money, it does go out. So I don't want to be too harsh. We, we, we do send money that way, but I think the Lord wants us to do more than that. And that's why this is a doctrine we do hold dearly, because God has a special heart for the poor. Let's look at the story that Jesus told here concerning our neighbor. Um, we don't really know the story's setting. It's, it's not important. Perhaps it's right when the 70 returned, and maybe they had just finished a meal or, or something like that. Um, but this lawyer, he stands up, 
and he asks Jesus a question. Now, a lawyer at this time is not one who's you know, familiar with a secular Roman law. This was a lawyer who was familiar with the Scriptures. He could interpret the Scriptures. He knew his Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. And the fact that he stood up to ask Jesus a question was a sign of respect. It would be similar to raising your hand and, and, and you're... You are yielding to this teacher to call on you. And so he had at least an outward sign of respect when he stood up and he asked this question. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Today we would ask the question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And of course Jesus says, well, you have to accept me into your heart and then it's all done. You know, it's, that's what we think now, which is not anywhere in the Bible. Look up all through the times of Scripture. Anytime somebody goes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look it up. It'll make you feel a little uncomfortable. But, it, but he asked Jesus this question, or Jesus asked him a question right after this. He says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, for a person, for a lawyer who has studied Scripture their whole life, this is a softball question. This is toss it up, go ahead, Hit it right out. Because this man, I'm sure, just like that, said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He cites the Shema, which is something that um, the Jews, they would recite two times a day. Deuteronomy 2.5. Twice a day they would pray this. This is a, you know, this is just a lob that he could hit out of the park. And then he adds Leviticus 19 to it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a great answer. It's a really good answer. Um, Jesus himself gave that answer when he was asked what was the most important commandment. He gave those two. And I don't know if you remember last year when we looked at the Ten Commandments. um, The Ten Commandments in all the Jewish law, the the Pentateuch, was revolutionary for its time. You, You had a number of religions that, you know, the, the gods supposedly gave laws, and these laws were very vertical. It was always how man can relate to their god. Now, in Judeo-Christianity, in the Pentateuch, we have first time ever laws that went horizontal. Yes, they went vertical. They went, you know, that you shall have no other gods before me. You shouldn't make idols. You know, you shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. It, it went vertical, but then it went horizontal. You shouldn't commit murder. You shouldn't steal. You need to honor your father and mother. And it's utterly unique to Judeo-Christianity that that we have this law that is both vertical and horizontal, that we need, how we relate to our neighbor matters. It matters. Now I'm sure, for those of you who've been to our church for a while, that He also recognized the answer that this lawyer gave as something very similar to our purpose statement. Very similar. Which I'm sure all of you could recite by heart. That we are a community being transformed by the gospel through the Holy Spirit to love God and to love people. To love God and to love people. Which is why this is a doctrine we hold dearly. Jesus, he commends this lawyer for his good answer. He says, all right, you've answered correctly. Now all you have to do is do it. Do it, and you'll live. And and, and it's here that the story gets a little interesting because the the lawyer realizes, wow, 
that's a pretty broad commandment. That's, that's pretty wide. Uh, and he wants to try to narrow it a little bit. Um, and so he wants Jesus to put some edges on it, to minimize this law a little bit. And maybe if it's minimized enough, then perhaps he can fulfill this. And so it says he wanting to justify himself or wanting to show that he's on the right track, wanting to show that he is obeying this, he asked Jesus, put parameters on it, who exactly is my neighbor? Is it my immediate family? Because if it's my immediate family, I can do that. I can take care of my immediate family, my, my good friends. Absolutely, I do that. Just put the parameters and I will show you, Jesus, how I'm doing it. And then notice that Jesus answers him by not answering his question. And this is absolutely crucial if you want to understand the meaning of the story. Jesus does not answer his question. The story that Jesus tells reveals to the lawyer he's actually asking the wrong question concerning the law. Look at verse 36 at the end of the story. When Jesus says, which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And so Jesus, he changes the question from who is my neighbor to how do I become a neighbor? How do I become neighborly? Not who is my neighbor. He makes it an issue of the heart. Let's look at this story. Familiar story. Um... A man is traveling this 17-mile kind of steep um, stretch in which the elevation, it drops or it rises and it drops about 3,000 feet. Um, there's lots of caves. It's a good place for robbers to, to hide out. It's a dangerous road. Still is today. And, and this man, he's attacked, he's robbed, he's left for dead. Verse 31 says, by chance, a priest is coming. Which, which seems to be really good news. A priest is going down this road. and Now likely, this is a priest either going or returning from his priestly duties in Jerusalem. A lot of the priests, they would live in Jericho and they would make that 17-mile journey and they would work, uh, they would do their temple duties, which was a two-week stint, and they would do their two-week service and then they would return. So Jericho was full of priests. So likely he's either going or he's coming back from his priestly duties. Now, priests in this day, they were, they were very well paid. They were well respected. Um, this man's probably riding on, on a mule or a donkey because he would have had the money to do so. And he sees this man on the road, and it says he quickly turns and he goes to the other side. And a lot of reasons, I mean, you could go through all these commentaries, and all of these reasons have been given why this priest goes to the other side. You know, maybe he feared another attack. Um, maybe he didn't want to get ritually unclean. I mean, if a, preach, if a priest touched this dead body, he'd be defiled. But then he's got to go through all of these things, all these rituals, all these washings for over a week just to get pure. If he touches this person, he's going to have to miss work for over a week, likely two weeks. He's going to have to wash all of his clothes. For him to touch this person, he's going to have to get deeply involved. It's going to throw his schedule completely off for the next couple of weeks. And so I know we're usually pretty hard on him. But actually, we've looked the other way for a lot less reasons. You know, it's raining outside. I'm not getting out of my car. You know, see somebody who needs some help. We're like, ah, I got to 20. I don't want to make change. You know, we, we, we give all these little reasons. 
And this guy seems to have a pretty legitimate one. Um, but it's interesting that Jesus does not go into this man's thought process. And Luke doesn't expound on it either. Gives no due details why he didn't. Because he wants you to know it's irrelevant. The point is the priest doesn't help. The equivalent of us going by in this situation, a dangerous situation, us going by, we're in the city of Birmingham, we see somebody beaten, laying down in a dark alley, and us walking by. Can we relate? Absolutely. But Jesus says it's wrong. Next person. Uh, the next person comes up is a lawyer. And, um, or a, he's a Levite, which means he, he, he's not a son of Aaron, because otherwise he'd be a priest. And when it says he's a Levite, it means he's likely an assistant to the priest. He's likely a lawyer, like the man who's asking the question to Jesus. And, and for some reason, we don't know why. Maybe he's walking because he doesn't quite have the money that a priest would have. He, he, he walks, he sees him, and he walks to the other side. We don't know why. Once again, maybe he says, oh, I, I can't get involved. Um, I don't have the money. I don't have the resources to help him. I don't know. But he moves over to the other side. All of these excuses. And, and the reason I think Jesus picks these two people out, especially the priest, is he wants to say you can be ritually pure. You can have great morals. You can obey the law and you can neglect the law at the same time. Because that priest could say, I'm keeping the law. I don't want to defile myself. I must have all my, my personal moral purity. But at the same time, he's neglecting the heart of the law. And if over and over again, if you, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see how that ticks Jesus off when he sees that. He rails against people like that. Very, actually, in the very next chapter... Jesus rails against a Pharisee who says, Jesus, why didn't you ritually wash your hands before dinner? And he, he, he just gives it to him. He goes, you wash the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Give alms to the poor. Give alms to the poor. Then what you do will be clean. Get to the heart of the matter. I think this priest and this lawyer are a lot like the uh, person we looked at in Isaiah 58 the people who are so concerned with their outward appearance, and they are seeking, they are praying, but yet they have neglected helping the poor and they have neglected justice. Finally, Jesus gets to the third person in the story, and he's telling the story in a very traditional rabbinic way in which the third person you know is the hero. So they're expecting, okay, here's the hero of the story. But the man in the story would have been an absolute shock to them, anyone listening, because it was a Samaritan. And, you know, we, have, we use the phrase good Samaritan for everything. I mean, it's just a common term for us. Oh, he's a good Samaritan. But for them, there was not anything as a good Samaritan. A Samaritan was, oh, that was a, man, those were half-breeds, the Samaritans. Uh, actually, in the Midrash, it said if you, if you had dinner with a Samaritan, it was the equivalent of eating pork. They were to have no associations with them. They, these Samaritans, I mean, they didn't even go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. They had their own temple site. And so they really looked down on these, these half-breeds. And yet, 
Jesus says this is the hero of the story here. And look at what the Samaritan does. First, he puts aside his schedule. He puts aside his prejudices. He puts aside his fears, and he goes and he helps this man. It says that he bandaged his wounds. Now, I'm sure this man didn't carry like, you know, a pocket full of gauze around with him. Uh, so what he's using, he's either using his clothes and ripping them, or he's using some kind of uh, blanket and he's ripping it. He is using whatever he has to actually act as some kind of gauze or bandage. Then he pours oil and wine on the wounds to clean them out, to provide some relief. And then he picks up this man, which is not an easy task. Have you ever just tried picking up a man? He picks up this man and he puts him on his animal, and so now he is going to walk the rest of the way while this man rides. And then he goes and he pays this innkeeper enough money. It says two denarii, which doesn't mean much to us. But that is enough money to feed and to house this person for one month. At least. Some commentaries say maybe up to two months. Can you imagine picking up a stranger off the street and saying, I will pay all of your food and I will give you housing and whatever more it takes for at least a month. A total stranger. And so the Samaritan overcomes his own fears, his prejudices, and he provides transportation. He provides health care. He provides food, physical and an emotional support to a man he doesn't know, and a man who, if he was well, would not even have eaten with him. That is over-the-top love. And notice when Jesus, when the story's over, he asks this lawyer, says, now which of these three proved to be his neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, which one acted neighborly? And the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, well, it's the one, the one who showed mercy. To which Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now this is an especially relevant topic now with the economy turning downward. I'm just going to give you a few stats. I know stats are pretty boring, but let me just give you a few. And these are a few years old, and I'm sure that in the last six months, they have changed drastically. 23% of the children in America grow up in poverty. Let me define poverty. So it's basically a quarter grow up in poverty. Poverty is a family of four that makes less than 14800 a year. A quarter of the families in America, or a quarter of the children. We don't know how, we, it's impossible to track the homeless. You can't track, we don't know how many homeless there are, but you can pull the homeless and find out why they're homeless. 35% of the homeless are women, um, of the homeless women are homeless because they're fleeing abuse. 25% of the homeless adults have mental problems. 22% are addicts. Here's a number that I think is is surely skyrocketing. 40% of the American homeless are families with children. Typically, I don't know if, in my mind, I always think, you know, it's it's the one bum who lives under the bridge. No, 40% have families. They have kids. And most of these children are under the age of six. And this strikes home with me because I have a six-year-old. Um... 
And, and a six-year-old, you know, for this homeless family, nobody even knows that six-year-old exists. That six-year-old can't vote. <laughs> um, it's they can't work. They can't go to school at this point. And when I look at a six-year-old like that compared to my six-year-old, it's, uh, wow, just kind of hits home. You know, the biblical word for that is um, injustice. Injustice. And we looked at this this past summer when we uh, studied Amos. This injustice. You know, you, you conservatives can look at that situation and they can blame, okay, you know, it's lack of work ethic. You know, it's, uh, they're, they're lazy. There's opportunity there. Liberals could say, oh, no, it's not that. We don't have enough funding. There's not enough after-school programs. The, the, the schools are terrible. And, and they can all point fingers at each other. But no group, whether you're liberal or conservative, is going to look at the six-year-old child and say, it's your fault you're poor. It's your fault that you're in this situation. Nobody does that. And the Bible says that as long as there is somebody in that position, the word for it is called injustice. And the fact that you could go a half mile that way and a six-year-old there lives in a completely different world than my little Caroline, who has every opportunity in the world open to her, who has never missed a meal, who has a great education, who she has a room full of books, the fact that they could be so different is unjust. Unjust. And as we looked at last week, we are called not just to give a handout as a church, but to break the yoke of oppression. Break the yoke. Get involved in school systems. Bring business to, business to areas that are dying. Get involved. I want you to think of this church. Any church should be this. It's the model neighborhood. The model neighborhood. You know, back when they used to build neighborhoods, you know, uh, a couple years ago, um, what they would do is they would, uh, they would build this shiny new home. And that's the home people could look at. They could walk in, they could see everything about it, and they could see, okay, this is what the rest of the houses are going to be like. And then they would invest in. The church is to be the model home. This church is to be the model of home. The kingdom of God is coming. And when people look at this church, they need to see what it's going to be like how the poor are valued, how justice is valued and upheld. They need to see mercy. They need to see that money doesn't have any value to us. They need to see the model home, and maybe they will be so moved that they will want to buy in. That's that's what I hope happens to this church, that they get a glimpse as to what is coming. And we're certainly going to fail at this often because you cannot possibly live to the standard that Jesus just gave. And the reason you can't is because you are broken, you are poor, you are sick. Christ is the one who has come, who has carried us, who has healed us. He is the one who has done all that. And it's only when we are so moved by that love, we have such an understanding of the gospel, that the love from him can begin to flow to others. And so then we can can serve the poor. And when we serve the poor, I mean, I don't, oh gosh, I do not want you guys to go out there and thinking, 
man, all right, let's go. Let's sign up. You know, there's the, the Woodlawn Homeless Shelter sign-ups out there. We're all going to sign up so we can pat ourselves on the back. And, you know, yes, we've done our good deed. Don't do that. You don't serve the poor for serving the poor's sake. This is out of love and it's out of adoration and it's out of worship. And, and a great passage that, that Jeff and I were talking about that brings clarity to that is um, when that woman broke the alabaster jar of perfume. Remember that? And she poured it on Jesus. And Judas, and, and actually says a number of the others, says, what a waste. Jesus, that bottle could have been sold and given to the poor. You could have given it to the poor. That's what I would have said. That's what I would have said. Somebody wastes $300 or something like that on a bottle of perfume, pours it on Jesus. And Jesus responds, she has done a beautiful thing. Leave her alone. You always have the poor with you. And you can do good to them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. And what Jesus is saying here, and he's said several other places in Scripture, is when I am physically present, lavish it on me. Lavish it on me. That's a beautiful thing. When I'm gone, who can you lavish it on? The poor. And as we wait for Jesus' return, if we truly want to lavish on him, we lavish on the poor abundantly. We let our goods, we let our money, we let our time go to those who are poor and oppressed as a way of adoring Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you found us on the side of the road and we were dead. Dead in our trespasses and sin. Our spirits were broken. We had no hope Everybody had passed us by. But you saved us. Lord, may that love change us. May that love absolutely consume us. We have a unique opportunity this this week, Lord. We can give you some clothes. We can give you some food. We can spend time with you. Actually, in a pretty physical way when we go and we do that to our neighbor, when we serve the poor, so change our hearts so that we would find great joy in doing that. I ask that this church will be a city set on a hill, shining for you. May we be the model home. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.